Hello, and welcome to A People's History of Violence, the podcast where we go entirely too deep into histories, assassinations, affairs, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, and trials. I'm your co-host, Isaac. And I'm your co-host, Peter. And today, we've already had one episode in our series talking about the travails of Mayor Dennis Kucinich in the late 70s in Cleveland, facing very real assassination plots in addition to you know, non-gun-toting plots to undermine the city and his mayoralty. And today we actually have uh, probably the most special guest you could possibly have on that, former congressman, former mayor, the man himself, Dennis Kucinich. Mayor, Dennis, how are you? Isaac, <laughs> Peter, great. I'm glad to uh, to join you in this discussion. I, I was, of course, impressed with both of your backgrounds. So uh, this uh, it, it seems to be well suited for the discussion, you know, I'm hoping to have with you today. And now, Dennis, I know that you're you're a busy man, even now, and pressed for time. So I'd like to go right into it because I'm not the best with titles, but I feel like your book, your kind of political memoir about this time in the late 70s, the division of light and power could easily have been subtitled uh, The Siege of Cleveland, 1978. Yeah. Um, me and Peter being like men of the left are us- pretty used to talking about, you know, companies, uh, forcing the looting of countries in places like Central America, South America, Africa, and even doing assassination plots. But it was a bit uh, jarring to see this happen in uh, in modern times in the United States. Uh, so I was wondering, it first off, I, I let let me interject here. Sure, uh, you know, I uh, as you're familiar and I'm familiar with uh, what happened with Salvador Allende in Chile. Mm-hmm. You know, I was painfully aware of the kind of efforts that can be made to overthrow uh, governments in, uh, in, in Central and, and South America. And, you know, the plots by uh, the CIA, State Department. Uh, and when this was going on in Cleveland, I, I noticed a, uh, a similarity between the coordination of uh, corporate and, and media interests in trying to capsize an American city, which may or may not have been unprecedented. But what was unprecedented is that this happened in America out in the open. And it was it was widely supported by the Cleveland establishment, and even in some cases by the national political establishment. You know, it remains a cautionary tale because uh, this kind of thing can happen in the United States. And it did happen. And so the division of light and power is really the story of of an extra, of of an extraordinary journey that I, uh, you know, didn't couldn't have imagined as a as a young city councilman how I would be projected into this fray over trying to save a municipal electric system from a takeover by its private competitor, and so the you know having having been advised though of the kind of dirty tricks that were being played. Uh, on other, uh, on other governments in other countries, I uh, I was cautioned, let's say, about what uh, what I might be able to expect. It was it was in it was in the air. It was you could see the news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it oh, was in I, it. Was, yeah, there was <laughs> there was corruption, greed, vengeance in in the air, and uh, you know I was uh, a young mayor and and felt that it was my obligation to protect the public interest, no matter what the uh, consequences would be. That actually leads nicely into my first question, which is uh, before you ever took office, we know this kind of, uh, at, at this point, it's it's a familiar story to us uh, of Cleveland in the 1970s, you know, industrial jobs being lost, the population declining, and so the tax revenues are going down. And that sets the stage for a debt crisis. Uh, but one thing that surprised me when I was reading your book, though, is how engineered and artificial the the fiscal crisis was. And I was wondering if you could take us back to your your mindset, your perspective when you were when you were just running for mayor and becoming mayor in Cleveland. How was how was Cleveland's situation comparable to other cities at the time? Should I break that question up? I can, no, I can speak to what was going on in Cleveland, and then you sure. know you you might make a reference to other cities. Uh, I. You know, first of all, you know, it was reported that uh, in in 1975 that the that the city of Cleveland 
would be looking at a, a debt crisis by 1977-78 because the bond and debt, the city was maxing out on its both its uh, voted and unvoted bond and indebted. And, and part of the city's obligations uh, were for projects that never needed to be built, like a so-called justice center. That uh, was initially, <laughs> well, I stopped that. But a so-called <laughs> justice was to be a building that would cost $60 million uh, in 1974, not, excuse me, 1971 dollars when it was first planned. And by the time it was completed in 75, it cost close to $200 million. The city was on the hook for a major part of that, that, that debt and, and, and bonded it out. Now, the thing you have to remember that the city's finances were guided by a, a law firm of Squire, Sanders, and Dempsey. Mm-hmm. And Dempsey was also the law firm for the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. The Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company was the largest utility in, in northern Ohio, and, and it had a, a, a virtual monopoly over its large service area, with the one exception being the Cleveland Municipal Electric System, commonly known as Muni Light. Right. They had, uh, CEI had designs on Muni Light for many years before I became mayor. And their, their plans to, to take Muni Light, which was just a, a fraction of, their, of, of the amount of customers they had. Muni Light had approximately 60,000 customers and with a revenue of about $25 million a year, the CEI was about at least 20 times that size. But the reason why the, the motive for the takeover and the urgency for the takeover was this. CEI was in, was in the middle of an aggressive nuclear power building program. They had two projects going, one in um, the Davis-Bessey plant in Port Clinton, Ohio, and, and, the, and a peri-nuclear peri power plant in Lake County, Ohio. And they were they were running into enormous cost overruns. There were there were all kinds of safety issues that attended the building of the plants. They did not go online when they wanted it to in the uh they're they're striving to get it online in the mid 70s in in the uh, uh early to mid 70s. But what happened is that because of numerous service interruptions, it was never fully used or useful, uh, both of their nuclear power plants at Perry and at Davis-Bessey. Yeah, I get the uh, sense that in the in the 70s at this time with the energy crisis, there was this uh, kind of breakneck, cut corners, try to get as many nuclear plants up and running as possible and then figure it no out. Question, no question about it. In northern Ohio, we had two nuclear plants built on Lake Erie. And the cost of, of this was, of both of them were supposed to be about, you know, one and a half to two billion each. You know, collectively, they went over 10 billion. And that, of course, began to uh, put CEI in a, in a rather tenuous position going from a blue chip stock to being concerned that, <clears throat> that they might have problems with their debt payments. So they're desperately looking for sources of uh, money. And of course, now it became an urgent matter to take over Cleveland's municipal electric system because our rates were about 20% less and the there'd be an immediate profit to taking it over because CEI would then charge the customers at a much higher rate, rake in the profit, monetize the system, take buy it at a cut rate basis. There were it was such a corrupt deal that the that uh, the previous mayor was pushing into where a system that was worth on its face, about a quarter of a billion dollars mm. was going to be peddled for eight, about 88.1 million. And it didn't even include other pro- city property. We had an antitrust damage suit that, that had been filed. But there was 330 million that had a real possibility of winning at that time. And they and knew so, that if they bought a muni light, that suit would be gone. Yeah, that's the whole thing. I mean, part of the conditions of the sale was the uh, nullification of the, of the, loss, of the lawsuit. Which, by the way, you know, the Atomic Safety and Licensing Commission, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, had had a finding that CEI had violated antitrust law and trying to put 
uh, MuniLite out of business. And how did they do it? Uh, they did it by using every anti-competitive act in terms of uh, trying to block the uh, MuniLite from being able to buy power uh, outside of its, of its service area and wheel it back in. They tripled the cost of power when MuniLite was locked into buying emergency power. They tripled the cost and helped drive up the MuniLite's uh, cost and, and also blocked MuniLite from repairing its own generators so it could right. continue to make its own power. So this was really, and of course, uh, famously, uh, they were found by the federal government to have actually created outages on the MuniLite system, which they then used to go uh, through the media to the public and say, look, this system doesn't even work. Why, why the heck are you keeping it? And uh, they sent people door to door after the outages to switch to CEI. And, you know, you got to keep in mind that the service areas overlapped in, mo in many cases. So there was door to door competition here. So they went door to door after these outages, which were engineered. So we're it, talking it, it's about like a mobster setting on fire your house and saying like, oh, my gosh, your fire department's doing terrible. <laughs> if only there was someone like us to protect your house. Well, you know what? That's a pretty good analogy. And so, you know, but we're, we're talking about a corporate crimes here that cried out for justice. And the minute that the that the federal government released this, uh, th these findings of a fact in what's, you know, for any student of it, it's really interesting to go back into the documents that were released on um, January the 6th, I believe, in 1977. Yeah. How the city was put at an extraordinary disadvantage by a combination of factors of antitrust violations and of bad legal advice or legal advice that was part of a plot to sink the system, uh, this public system. The, you know, so this NRC Nuclear Regulatory Commission finding at the very time it was released, the city's mayor at the time, who, who was a, actually a pretty decent guy, but he, he wasn't up to, to this fight. He just, you and this know, was during, uh, during Ralph Perk's administration. Yeah. Or? I, yeah. I knew Ralph well, and you know, he, he wasn't a he wasn't a bad man, but but he was absolutely forced and told, look, the city's going to go broke. He's told us by financial advisors connected to, <laughs> to first to us, Cleveland Electric Illuminating. City's going to go broke if you don't sell us. And, he, you know, he was panicked into switching a long held position that he had against any possible sale of our municipal electric system to coming out to favor selling it. And when the Nuclear Regulatory Commission ruling came through. Ralph Berg said, well, this proves that we have to sell the light system now. I mean, it's a totally tortured logic and a convoluted conclusion that was picked up by the media and the drumbeat began. And at that point in 1977, I was clerk of the Cleveland Municipal Court. The city council proceeded to vote to authorize the sale of the system. And that's the point that I intervened uh, with a uh, petition drive to block the sale. And that was the that was the beginning of your efforts that eventually led you and your your team into the mayor's office. Um, it, it it did, but you know, I, I you know, Isaac, I just want to point out something. Sure. When I started to push back, even before the petition drive, that's you know the the coincidence between the first attempt on me personally and the nuclear regulatory commission ruling was a little bit too neat. And uh, could we go a little bit deeper into that? And I, just to be clear, as far as the timeline that we're talking about, there is a very close relationship in time, at least, between the Nuclear Regulatory Commission finding that CEI, this power company that has an interlocking directorship with the, uh, the mm -hmm. main financier here, Cleveland Trust, mm -hmm. and is also using the same mm -hmm. law firm. I wonder if these people like Put on disguises each time, right. like, like one one minute maybe I put on a mustache. So right. now now I'm with the CI. If this were a movie, it would be more mysterious. Like yeah. if it were a movie, you would find out that there was some cutout between CEI and the law firm that runs the city's finances. But in real life, it was just no. They they just had the same lawyer. It's it's how things it's fine. Yeah. The rule of the town. Yeah. Um, but you're saying that there's a very close relationship in time here between that and the first attempts on you, the, the first articulated threats on your life. Is that right? Well, um, you know- I'm not trying I mean, to put words in your mouth. 
No, no. In early, you know, in early January, the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission ruling uh, is released, which cited chapter and verse violations of antitrust law and, and fortified a antitrust suit that the city had already filed, you know, which, so this was huge stakes. I mean, we're talking about, you yeah. know, back in the mid seventies, we're talking about a deal then that could have been worth over a billion dollars easy. And this is, you know, in a, you know, in a, in a city at that point that was about, you know, hovering around 700,000 population. Yeah. So, and, and the stakes of having a monopoly on electric power and then, and then ex- basically getting your record expunged of all the violations of antitrust law and all the dirty tricks that had high value. And again, going back to the fact that an additional motive was that uh, CEI was headed towards a financial crisis and they needed more sources of revenue to kind of soften the impact of their growing debts from nuclear power plants that were neither used nor useful. So I'm sitting in my um, living room one night with my fiance and uh, I just, you know, had a, an urge to go by her side. And at that split second, a high, fu- a high powered rifle shot missed my head by a fraction. I felt like as, as a, a, the house felt like it had been slapped by a giant burst of wind. And I didn't really know at that moment what it was. I, 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 I was like, I don't, you know, what is this? I, I couldn't understand it. The next morning I went downstairs and I, I thought I saw a spider on the wall. I was just looking to, you know, at, at, at what kind of spider was this? Well, it wasn't a, a spider. It was a, a bullet hole. And I called the police and then they came and, you know, went from the outside of the house to the inside of the house to across one room, two rooms, <laughs> through the interior wall, out the exterior wall at the rear of the house. And they found a uh, high-powered rifle uh, shell uh, lodged in the, uh, in, in the gutter behind the house. And so, you know, the, I told the detective what, you know, where I was and everything. And he said, well, you know, somebody, somebody tried to kill you. And, and of course, you know, I was fully aware of that there was no other issue or anything that I was involved in. There was nothing privately, there was nothing publicly except the effort to save the municipal electric system. So from that moment on, you know, I, I knew that the uh, that there were some personal stakes that I hadn't countenanced before. Yeah. Uh, That's an understatement. If you don't mind me getting annoyingly specific, which Peter knows is, is my uh, my particular habit here. When you were sitting there and this happened, you didn't hear a did you even hear a crack uh, or anything other than just no, kind of. No, I didn't. But what I, I didn't hear all I it was feeling of. The only thing I could describe it in, you know, best so I, I can recall was it felt like the house had been slapped by a giant hand, you know, like yeah. just, you know, which I could only relate to like a sudden wind gust or something. Yeah. Um, and I, I couldn't, I, I, you know, it could have been from the changes of pressure that occurred when, you know, the house was pierced. But had I been, had I been sitting, you know, under, sitting on a, uh, on a hassock had i been sitting there I, my head just happened to be in you know in the general path of where this thing traveled so i was you know pretty lucky to uh it was just luck that's all that i wasn't hit yeah <laughs> let me let me pause on that for just a second now talking about something you, you know you mentioned the uh police detectives coming to your place afterwards uh one thing that we've talked about uh, previously when we talked to Professor Tim Gill on this podcast, and uh, we've also kind of put, played portions of the interview, was uh, you were in communication, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, quite a bit over the course of when you're mayor, the Lieutenant Ed Kavasik. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, that's you're, you're pronouncing the name correctly. And he kind of keeps you apprised of the information about these these plots, because there's there's more than just just one. It's it's pretty constant, if I'm not mistaken. Well, w- what happened is that, so, you know, I get elected mayor 
more than anything on a promise to save the uh, municipal electric system. And, and while all the machinations were going on with CEI in trying to destabilize the city government, Kovacic and the banks, uh, notably Cleveland Trust, were, were beginning to give us uh, uh, some soros, shall we say, over the, over the city debt, which they continued to renew until, you know, they rolled over the city's debt yeah. continually until it came time, until I, until I got elected and was saving me any light. And they said, well, no, we're not going to extend a debt. You're, you know, we're going we're gonna to collect it on uh, December 15th, 1978. It was, it was only, you know, Cle- Cleveland Trust held about, fi- uh, about $5 million of the debt. Yeah. I mean, it, they're probably big cities that spend that much today on toilet paper. <laughs> but what uh, they wanted, they basically said they were going to collect. And as the lead bank in the largest, 33rd largest bank in America, the biggest bank in Ohio, they had, were causing the other banks to follow suit. Also, because, as you know, if you have one creditor who goes in, the other ones better make their claim or they're out of luck. So this if I'm not mistaken, of, Cleveland Trust was the real holdout bank. At, and I'm, I'm hoping well, it wasn't thinking. a holdout. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, in one way, it was a holdout, but it was a holdup bank. Yeah, because they, yeah. you know, you you've heard of people robbing banks. Well, this is banks robbing the people, and yeah. so you know, apropos Bertolt Breck, what's robbing a bank compared to owning one? But we'll go on. <laughs> you know, I, I digress. So, so you got to understand that the context in which these attempts against me came. One is the you know resistance to selling our municipal electric system. The Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company using every legal means they could to try to block the city from using equipment from trying you know destabilizing the city and trying to and trying to stop us from operating as an as a utility and yeah. Cleveland Trust putting us in a vice financially and the media playing a facilitating role by you know reconstructing the social reality of the city to make it seem that hey this light system ought to be ought to be sold and they did that during Perk's term too they, they, they were part of the drumbeat. Why? Why was the media that's supposed to protect the public interest doing it? Because, they, because radio, TV, and newspapers were all getting substantial advertising revenue from this private utility. So they just fell in line as a spear carrier for the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company, even to the point of where CEI was writing editorials for, for the media. And getting them published verbatim. And, you know, reporters were getting fired for actually telling the story of what was actually of what was happening. And, you know, we're talking about a a coordinated effort to force the sale. And I, you know, was steadfast in saying this is not in the interest of the people of Cleveland. I'm not going to do it. I was scheduled to be the grand marshal in a parade in uh, around around Columbus Day of 1978. Uh, this was a parade in the black community. It, you know, it wasn't a Columbus Day parade, but it was a, a parade that coincided with that in the black community. And I was the grand marshal. So I was uh, that morning of the parade. I was su- I was supposed to uh, not supposed to. I was scheduled to have a meeting with uh, Carl B. Stokes, who was the first African-American mayor of a major American city, Cleveland, Ohio. He was, he was elected in uh, 1971. Uh, excuse me, uh, 1967, and he left office in 71. And Carl Stokes went on to uh, a notable career in broadcasting in New York City. And he and I became friends over the years, and he was coming to Cleveland specifically to meet with me to give me advice as to how to deal with the council and the council president, who were just fanatical at this point. The leadership was fanatical about selling the light system. So Carl is on his way to my house, and I'm upstairs in my little library, my house uh, that I bought in uh, 1971 for $22,500 in a uh, working-class neighborhood in Cleveland, where I still live, by the way, yeah. one years later. And I'm um, upstairs, and all of a sudden, I uh, pass out. I wake up, and there's blood all over the room. I had no idea what the heck happened. Uh, my, I, Carl Stokes came in the house. My wife, I heard my wife call him from upstairs because she was with me. He came in the house and he, he ran upstairs 
and um, he lifted me up and placed me in a in a bed in the next room. And the blood blood was just pouring out of me. And I had, uh, you know, by then an ambulance had been called. They rushed me to the hospital. And I had a total, you know, I had a six units of blood uh, transfused. Uh, and what had, it, what had happened, what, it, what I'd learned, is that I had an ulcer over an, over an artery that burst uh, in my stomach. And I was, I was literally bleeding to death. And the doctor who was supervising my care, uh, Dr. Pensero, and I described this in the book, you know, he, as I was being treated in the emergency room, he came out and told my wife and my press person, Andy Junowitz, that we could lose him. In other words, I, you know, I was, I, was in, I was in very grave condition at that point. But they were able to save me. Uh, and I was, I, was very, I, I was very fortunate. But this, this bleeding ulcer, uh, which I didn't even know that I had, but, you know, because I, 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 I never had any pain or anything. Very strange uh, to have that kind of a thing in such a low stress, <laughs> low pressure yeah. environment. Um. Yes, I, I realize <laughs> that. But, but here's the extraordinary development that I only learned about a couple of days later. When the, ch- the chief of police, uh, who had been newly appointed, came to my office and or my, my hospital room. Yeah, that was then my office. But came to my hospital room and he informed me that the reason why there were police uh, all around the hospital and up on the floor was something I complained about. He said, the reason why they're there is because we have just learned of a new assassination attempt. And apparently, if I had been in that parade that afternoon, there was going to be another attempt. And so uh, that that bleeding ulcer, which almost killed me, actually saved my life or may have saved my life. Yeah. You know, it's it's moments like those that you really start to, you know, reflect on what the poet called crass casuality. I mean, you just sometimes you're just lucky. And, you know, once again, I, I, I it, it was, you know, an, an extraordinary enigma that either way blood was going to be shed. And I was uh, I, I was very fortunate because that episode ended up saving my life. In all of these episodes, you had to put a lot of trust in in certain members of the Cleveland Police. But one thing that struck me in your book, and, and frankly, also listening to the interviews with uh, Ed Kavasic, was it doesn't seem like it was how to put this. Uh, not all members of the Cleveland Police Department at the time uh, seemed like they could be trusted. I mean, I'm a lot of people are familiar with the usual suspects and how there's a there's a cab, quote unquote, cab service called New York's finest cab service. That's police officers driving around uh, criminals. But you, in Cleveland at the time when you took office, there was actually that type of thing operating. There were police officers who were driving uh, people on stick up and burglary jobs from from place to place or driving them to safe houses. Isn't that right? Yeah, there, there. You know, police corruption was a serious uh, matter, but not everyone in the police department was corrupt. No. There were some people who, who took advantage of a lack of supervision and made sure that they cashed in on their position. But they, you know, but uh, most of them were caught. And you know, I don't think Cleveland was different from a lot of other big cities. <laughs> That's true. Probably true enough in the late seventies. I mean, you look at the movie Serpico, okay? And and so the the thing that that I did is that. I believe, and I still believe, that police ought to be well-paid, but they ought to be uh, well-controlled by the civilian authority. And that part of it is seldom really functioning because most mayors don't want to take on the police. Uh, I did, and you know, we had a couple strikes that, that were created uh, as a result. But I, you know, I felt very strongly that honest police ought to be supported. And I found in Ed Kavasik, someone of rock-solid integrity, so when he came to me and was advising me of what was going on, I, I paid close attention. And he saw to it that we had extra police coverage. And kept, he kept me posted on a regular basis about what a plot that was underway that we were tipped off, that he was tipped off by the Maryland State Police. And it was interesting because a, a policeman at the command level had this information before that parade took place, but didn't really tell Kavasik until a couple of days later, so that you know I was really hanging out there, totally exposed. If had I been in that parade without any real protection, because I never, I you know I, I don't like I don't go for this uh, heavy security thing in order to impress anybody. If I you know if I don't need it, I don't need it. Forget it. But and and I like contact with the public, so I wasn't ex- 
I wasn't, even though I had been properly cautioned in January of 77, I still didn't have that in my mind all the time because you can't really function if you're going to lead a city or any other level of government if you're fearful. Right. I, I just, you can't do that. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I can't be intimidated. You know, I just grew up that way. I just can't be intimidated. And and I wasn't going to be intimidated. And, you know, but when Kavasa came to me with the information uh, in details about about movements of potential assassins and, and places where they were meeting and, and you know, caution that had to be taken, I paid close attention. I wasn't going to dismiss it. We've mentioned in passing uh, some members of your, your team that kind of came in with you into the office. And I read about this before, and I, I do get a sense from your book, it was kind of a, a team of outsiders, but not not political neophytes or novices. In particular, one that struck me, and I wonder if you could talk a bit more about, was um, someone who really functioned as kind of like a shrewd, but kind of dyed-in-the-wool progressive operator, which was Bob Weissman. Do you think you could expand, elaborate a little bit on your team when you were there in the office and kind of what it was like to be in this kind of war room <laughs> environment? Well, I'll tell you, Bob Weissman functioned as a chief of staff. Yeah. And and he came out of a, a labor union background. He was president of a large Chrysler local. And he you know, he was a hard-nosed negotiator who uh who had rock solid integrity. And you know, I, I surrounded myself with people who had integrity, who had courage, who couldn't be bought, who who really wanted to make government work. And so Bob was there ready to start in my career. He uh when I filled out a questionnaire to the UAW, like nine pages when most people responded on a half a page in talking about what I wanted to do as a city councilman. He flagged that and immediately the UAW got behind my council race. And Bob was someone who who had this experience and he provided a uh, philosophical and, and an intellectual matrix that, that I felt had, it, it had resonance with the way I looked at the world. And so I when I became mayor, it was only natural that I, I'd make him the chief of staff. And and the impression that he made was immediate because uh, we went after every unnecessary contract, every crooked deal that was out there to shut it down. We cut the city payroll. Uh, we, we reduced city services, attritional cutbacks, by, by 10% without affecting the budget, savings of 10% without reducing service. As there were a lot of people on the payroll who just weren't doing any work. And, and so Bob we was- had connections with certain organizations. <laughs> yeah, right. Bob, Bob had a keen understanding of the games that were going on, and I just, you know, and I needed his help. But I also had other people, you know, my cabinet was made up of Harvard-trained lawyers, my, my law director, Harvard Law, Jack Schulman, his brother, was the chief counsel, number three in his class at Harvard, the health care health director, uh, Harvard grad, uh, a um, uh, the uh, you know one of my human uh, resources director at a PhD from I think Minnesota. You know, I I I had Norman Crumholtz, who was our community development director, who's noted or rather city planner, nationally known uh, in city planning. I, I had I had a great group of people put together, and what what bound them was a sense of commitment to the people of the city and wanting to make government work. And so, but yet this group of people, whose average age was in the mid thirties, average, our administration came under attack as quote Kitty Hall unquote. <laughs> so there was an attempt to try to dis- disparage us because of you know my youth. And also because it used to some of my some of the people in my cabinet as just a bunch of young people who didn't know anything. They, they get elected, take over the city and they screw everything up. You know, we need mature leadership here who would <laughs> mature leadership who would sell the city out. You know? <laughs> and, 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 you know, and that, thing and jack up electricity rates for everyone in the city. Exactly. You know, that's yeah. the kind of that, that Cleveland needed at the time. So we represented a, a frontal challenge to a corrupt corporate organized effort to try to force us not to just sell an electric system, but Cleveland was in the middle of a privatization craze at the time mm. that we stopped when I got elected. I mean, they were <laughs> selling everything. It wasn't nailed down. They, you know, getting you know, getting rid of city parks. Uh, they lost the control of the sewer system. There was an attempt to to sell the water system. 
the city was looking at privatization. Why as a source of revenue? Because the city was being advised by attorneys connected to the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company before I came in that started to say, well, sell this, sell that. I mean, it was the first uh, wave of privatization that later on swept across America. And the uh, capstone of it in Cleveland was to be the forcing the sale of the municipal electric system. Now, one thing that I I found interesting is even on uh, the eve of when Cleveland Trust and the other banks are going to try to to basically force the city into a default. You go back and you read again the, uh, or parts of the memoirs of Tom Johnson, who's really more of a early 20th century progressive mayor of Cleveland, who it sounds like you took a lot of inspiration from. And it was kind of a past his, his prologue there. He also fought the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company to even establish this municipal public lighting company as a publicly owned competitor. Right. And they drove him out of office. You know, this was more than 100 years ago. But he said something. He he understood immediately. And this is somebody who, you know, he came, he and I had different backgrounds. He he was a millionaire inventor. Yeah. And, and he was called a traitor to his class because he was for, for public ownership. And he said that he said something that was very important. He said, I believe in public ownership of all municipal service facilities, of, of waterworks, of, of schools, of, of parks, and you know, on and on. Because if you do not own them, they will in time own you, own you. They'll corrupt your politics, rule your institutions, and finally destroy your liberties. So, you know, he said that, I believe, in, in, in 1911. And it was prophetic because it wasn't only about Cleveland, it's about Americans, you know, American cities and counties. And so I, I, I remembered that and I remembered his struggle. And it's in a book called My Story. Yeah. And, and it really impacted me so that on, on, the, on the evening of December 15th, 1978, you know, we're talking 44 years ago, just about to this date, I was presented a proposition by the Cleveland elect by the Cleveland Trust Bank. And they said, you know, earlier in that day that, look, if you sell Muni Light, we will provide the city with $50 million worth of new credit. And you can just think of what you can do with that. And, but, you know, there was no interest in renewing the city's debt, obviously. And so I knew at that point I had to stand for something. I mean, either, you know, I could have these are people, this establishment in Cleveland at that point, Cleveland was number three corporate capital in America, behind New York and Chicago. Yeah. And if I had gone along with this, I would have just cut a deal with the people who could have been the guarantors of my personal political success. I mean, I was 31 going on 32 during all these events. And if I had caved in, I mean, these are people who, you know, the road to being governor of Ohio would have been, would have been paved easily because I was at that point one of the most prominent Democrats in the state. And I, I knew my political career was going to go in a dumper if I said no to them because the media was in on it and they were just going to describe as a young mayor who screwed up the city. Uh, but I couldn't care about that because I had to look at my responsibility to the people of the city who, who had an electric system they could call their own right. for over 70 years that provided cheaper electricity to people who were customers. And to, because to me, you know, the way I, when I grew up in Cleveland, I remember my parents counting pennies to pay utility bills. And it matters what people pay for electricity and for other utility services. It matters because for people, it matters if they can save a couple bucks a month or more than that today on, on their electric bills. So I just said, you know, I'm thinking about my parents. I'm thinking about the people I grew up with who were having trouble making ends meet. I'm thinking about all those people out there who are looking to me to do the right thing by them. And so I said, no. And Cleveland Trust refused to renew the loans. They put the city into in Cleveland into default on December 15th, 1978. And I was, no matter what I did, including having an election, uh, that uh, confirmed the public's support for Munilite by a two-to-one margin. Yep. Uh, basically, the narrative was set that I destroyed the city by not selling the electric system. And so I, I lost re-election in 1979. 
one thing that struck me, and you've alluded to this already in our interview, but one thing that struck me in the book is it didn't really matter what proposal was on the table because you made a lot of different, and your mm. team made a lot of different reasonable proposals that would seemingly get majority support, even close to majority support on, on the council, run as it was by George Forbes. But you offered to, you, you had an option to uh, basically not even sell, but renew the rights to uh, a railroad uh, easement or transversal that would have <laughs> fixed the financial problem. You had a tax proposal that would have pre- fixed the problem. You offered to put Muni Light in a, in a trustee position that it had to prove its profitability, which you knew it could do given the given the numbers. And every single proposal, it seems like, was met with, you just need to sell Muni Light, okay? <laughs> right, right. No proposal was so good that it couldn't be turned down. Yeah. Uh, no, no proposal that would save the system was ever going to be accepted. And, and, and let me tell you how bad it got. When I asked the people of Cleveland to vote for a, an increase in taxes that would pay off the Muni Light debt and the city's debt, and the square, you know, not the Muni Light debt, but pay off the city's debt. Yeah, the entire debt. Which was used, which was used to bludgeon, try to bludgeon uh, us into submission to sell Muni Light as a way of paying off the city's debt. When I went to the people, they voted by a two to one margin in February of 1979 to save Muni Light and to pass a tax increase. And even though the banks had agreed that if that tax passed, we'd be taken out of default, Cleveland Trust and the other banks reneged on that, kept the city of Cleveland into default and tried to pitch us into a second default and a third default. I mean, we're talking about a level of of cupidity and corruption that was extraordinary. And, you know, all, what I had to do was just say no. You know, and if I would have said quietly, uh, it would have sounded like the, the, the roar of a beast to these people because the only thing they were prepared to hear was yes. Yeah. So it was, a, it was about money, obviously, but it was also about power, right? They yeah. didn't want to be defied. They wanted and, – and holding on to an asset or seizing an asset like a, like a company, like a city's – electrical grid, you know, that's something that's worth, it's, you know, it's potential for profit down the line, especially if you wind up with a power monopoly. I mean, that's worth. It increases increases the overall value of the business enterprise. I mean, that was a whole, and it also, it also put a stop to anyone in in their service area that could even hope to try to municipalize their town or their city. And I mean, this was the, this was the stopper. The industry itself was moving towards privatization. Mm-hmm. And so here's uh, CEI leading the way. Right. So, you know, this story, the division of light and power, Isaac, it took me 40 years to finish this, the book. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, so, you know, if any anyone's out there listening and working on a book and just can't seem to finish it, uh, take heart. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, Isaac, Isaac was very kindly said nice things about me as a literary critic. But, you know, I read the book, I've read a fair number of books by politicians, and I really was struck by the really genuine passion behind it. You know, there's nothing kind of pro forma or or just kind of saying the lines like politicians tend to do in their books you know you could tell exactly you know among other things you could tell that you had a background in you know romantic literature uh (laughs) uh, reading it through and the other thing that struck me is i mean how often are you going to get a two to one vote in favor of increasing your own taxes uh i mean that speaks to the kind of popular support that you you must have had to to keep muni and to to find another way out of Cleveland's financial situation other than what was being offered by these, you know, oligarchs. Uh, well, Peter, let me tell you something. Um, Brock Weir, who was the lead banker and had had, had uh, was the head of Cleveland Trust, he, he had a meeting, uh, a so-called secret meeting. But of course, secret meetings have a way of having the secrets leak, where he met with the business leaders of Cleveland right after 
the we won the the vote to save muni light and to increase taxes and he told him he said look we got you know we got to get rid of this guy because if we don't this is going to spread mm. national mm. this kind of uh, urban populism as uh, as it was called at the time and uh and so the, an extraordinary effort was made after I won those elections to continue to hold us in default, to blame me for default, to create service disruptions through through the uh, council president, and to um, uh, and to do anything to try to drive me from office. And in the end, there was a tragedy that occurred mm-hmm. on the eve of the election, where the other candidate's daughter was tragically hit by a car and and died. And she's a lovely lovely little girl and it stopped the campaign in its tracks and any chance that i had of even making a case had to be put aside because in matters of life and death when somebody loses a loved one and it happens to be a candidate for office you can't really campaign mm. in a way it's not it's not just a matter of poor taste it's inhumane yeah uh, and so when that event happened you know i understood that the election was pretty much over and it didn't matter what was said, everything was kind of frozen <clears throat> in place. And, you know, that's, that's life. I mean, you know, you don't, these events sometimes happen that would seem tangential and central to an outcome. And I, I felt bad about the, the loss of life in the person, in, in the other candidate's family. And I just, I mean, worse than that. I mean, I had seen this little girl on a campaign trail and I was heart, my wife and I were heartsick over what had happened. I mean, I was, in some ways, I was I was so stunned by it, I I couldn't even campaign because it was it was just mind blowing, and I think a lot of people in the city felt the same way, and so you know, in in a way, the the final issues in Cleveland were never really litigated politically, and and it's okay with me because you know I'm I don't have any complaints about that. It just we at that time. The people in my administration, who each one of them was function heroically, they did what they were supposed to do, and I was I was very proud of each and every one of them for for holding everything together despite enormous pressure. And so, you know, that's what public service has to be about. You have to be willing to stand up for what you believe in, and if and if you if you win, fine. If you don't, so what? I mean, it's a matter of you know what's more important is when your moment came. To, to meet the test, did you do what was right by the people or did you sell them out? And so I know that what we did was right for the people of Cleveland. And the good news is that even today, despite renewed efforts <laughs> to go after the light system, even today, 44 years later, Cleveland still has a municipal electric system. That's a, that's a hell of a legacy. Yeah. Well, it's, it's you know what, it's like it's just... You have, we have duties that we take on in certain positions, and you just just do the right thing and don't worry about what's going to happen because you know it's it's all about standing standing up for what you believe in and and being true to yourself and having a moral compass mm-hmm. and you know which sounds uh, anachronistic in politics. Mm-hmm. But you know, there, moral issues do arise, and you know, there, you know, there, there has to you have to have a knowledge of right and wrong, and I just saw it as wrong, and I didn't care what they were going to do to me because you know, to me, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything, and I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to uh, worry about my career or anything else. It was like take a stand, and everything will sort itself out. And and now you know, here we are, Peter Isaac. The three of us are having a conversation about something that happened 44 years ago and even more because you have to go back to the history. It's more than 50 years. This story began. Arguably goes back to when Tom Johnson got that. It does. So here we are talking about something that has an arc of 100 years or more. And let me tell you, this thing is happening everywhere now, <laughs> not just you know, not just in America, but around the world. This push for privatization. You look at things like the terms that the International Monetary Fund sets for countries to borrow money. They get them in hock. They have to sell the jewels of their country. And, uh, you know, this is this is an international thing. And 
and and money power has a way of causing people to bend. But here's uh, here's a, a case in Cleveland where um, where the people rallied to support their own interests. So I'm grateful to have a chance uh, to have served, and I'm grateful to have a chance to talk to you about it. And I, I hope that we're we're grateful uh, to have you on yeah. to talk about it. This is this is great. Well, Thank you so much. Yeah, well, you could you know, let people know about the book, because this book, The Division of Light and Power, I'm probably, I'm blessed to have had the opportunity to serve Cleveland. But at the same time, uh, the the story, which I didn't want anybody else to tell because I, I had to tell it. Uh, and it took so long to write. It. But this story is not just about the past. It's a prologue yes. of what happened. Interest groups get uh, try to get control of the city. And what happens when a, when public officials try to do the right thing? And the ob- obverse of that coin is what happens when privatization takes place? What are the stakes? What happens when you sell out, not just sell a uh, service to private interest, but what happens when you sell out the people? Because the whole thing about privatization is that the people end up paying twice for the first thing, which the, for the service which they paid with their tax dollars or their or their fees to build, and then they pay a second time once it's privatized in terms of higher costs for service. So this is a you know privatization is one of the great scandals in contemporary government history. And anywhere you look, I will show you a, a failure of governance. You look at privatization wherever it occurred. I'll show you a, a failure of governance, a somebody somebody getting some personal benefit out of this, and the public once again taking in the neck because of something that was part of a governmental service and suddenly go into a private sector at a higher premium. The whole thing behind privatization is is cut service, increase the cost, and make bigger profit. And and in some cases, it it masquerades a criminal enterprise. Mm-hmm. So look. Uh, This is uh, much appreciated, this opportunity to talk to you, and uh, good luck with your podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mayor. Thank you again, Mayor. Hi, listeners. Isaac here. I'd like to take a moment to say thanks again to Mayor Kucinich, of course, for coming on our humble podcast. The book is The Division of Light and Power. And it is an action-packed read. It's a hell of a book. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers and friends who made this show and this episode in particular possible. If you're new to the show, please like and subscribe to us on Patreon. Our patrons get a bonus episode every month. That's patreon.com slash a people's history of violence. Thanks again, listeners. Bye for now.